You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Indeed, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves here at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. The title of this message is From Cancel Culture to Gospel Culture. From cancel culture to gospel culture. So if you would, please pray with me and let's ask for grace as we open God's word together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We have sung much truth. Lord, we just ask for grace and faith to apply it and to obey it. Lord, the text before us, in one sense, is very clear and apprehendable. And on the other hand, Lord, apart from your grace, is impossible. But Lord, we ask what Augustine asked all those years ago. Command us what you will, but grant what you command. So we trust you for grace. Would you bless our time? Show us Christ. In his name we pray, amen. From cancel culture to gospel culture, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. I would wager that one of the most overused and misapplied and contorted texts of all of Scripture, and there are many, but if you were to ask me to give my top three verses that are pulled out of context and used wrongly, this would be one of those passages. Matthew 7.1, you can go ahead and glance down at it in case you're unfamiliar, but how many times have you been told in person, on social media, in different contexts, judge not, finish the rest. Lest you be judged. It's always in King James. I don't know why. (laughs) Judge not, lest you be judged. This is where we find ourselves. This judge not attitude has spawned a new term, and that is cancel culture. And this isn't an eisegetical sermon about cancel culture, right? But I think we're going to see the uh, application to our text. This cancel culture, if someone dares to challenge how I feel, my truth, what I dub to be right, in an age where truth is relative and personal ethics are like a wax nose that can be shaped and molded to suit one's desires. Any attempt to challenge or critique or to correct or question is met with Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Judge not lest I shut you down. Judge not lest I unfriend you. Judge not lest I cancel you. Where does this judge not attitude come from? I'm reading a book right now that I can't recommend enough. It's not an easy read, but it's a necessary one, and that is Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Dr. Truman says this about where does this cancel culture impulse come from, this judge not impulse, where does it come from? Dr. Truman says, quote, the intuitive moral structure of our modern society prioritizes victimhood. It sees self in psychological terms and regards traditional sexual quotes as oppressive and life-denying, and it places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. So perhaps, perhaps, 
The cancel culture has it right. Maybe that is the proper application of Matthew 7.1. Maybe that's exactly what our Lord meant when he says, judge not, abstain from any judgment at all. You are simply to love, live and let live. Let bygones be bygones. Truth is indeed relative. Your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. Judgment goes out the window. There's no objective standard, so judge not. Maybe that's what Matthew 7 means. As you can probably guess, that's not what I'm going to preach. We will see that Jesus is not commanding his people to lay aside all judgment. Not at all. As it was in our previous passages on giving and fasting and praying, don't forget we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. It's still building on what has come before. This is not an isolated teaching. And just as in weeks past with giving and fasting and praying, Jesus is infinitely more concerned with motive than he is with method. And it's no different here in Matthew 7. He is much more concerned with motive than he is with method. Dr. Daniel Doriani, I, I had to put this quote in there. Doriani just hit the nail on the proverbial head. He says, quote, Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. He, prohibits, he prohibits the condemnation of others. Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. He forbids the condemnation of others. And that's exactly what we see in our text. At Redeemer Bible Church, we want gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And that phrase is something that Pastor Redberg has been, he's been ringing that bell over and over again, and I think he is very right in doing so, and I support him wholeheartedly. We want to be a place marked by gospel doctrine and gospel culture. That means we want our theology to impact the way that we treat other people and the way that we treat one another. And that means that we are not censorious and critical but that does mean that we are deeply concerned for one another's growth in Christ's likeness. That does mean that we move toward one another and sometimes we have to speak hard truth. I need you to do that in my life. I am not sanctified enough for you to adopt a live and let live attitude. There are truths that I need brought to bear on this wandering heart. But how you do it is what Jesus is aiming at. This means that Christians must strive for the delicate and elusive balance of exercising critical thinking without having critical spirits. Christians must strive for the elusive balance of critical thinking without having a critical spirit. Jesus is not calling us to abandon all judgment. He's calling us to do it in a way that commends the gospel. So the main point that I'm going to argue from, from verses 1 through 6, is this. If you don't get anything else, here's the thesis statement. God's grace toward us compels us to speak the truth in love to others. Oh, yeah. God's grace toward us compels us to speak the truth in love to others. Therefore, a gospel culture will be marked by three things. The first of those that it will be marked by is discernment. A gospel culture will be marked by discernment. So 
Before we jump into verse 1, let's go down to verse 6 and let's move it up. We're going to deal with verse 6 first. So, here's the elephant in the room. If you read Matthew 7 and say, well, it says judge not, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? The Bible's always the best commentary on itself. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Jesus literally in verse 6 is saying what? You're going to have to make judgment calls. When you're sharing the gospel and you ascertain that the person that you're speaking to is blasphemously, hard-heartedly treating the holy things of God as if they are vile, he says, make a judgment call, pick it up, and walk. So clearly, clearly, contextually, Verse 1 is not calling for the abandonment of all judgment because in verse 6, Jesus says you're going to have to make judgment calls. We do that all the time, don't we? We do that this morning when we affirm a new pastor or elder. Dayton didn't come to us and say, my true self on the inside, my truth tells me that I feel that I'm an elder in this church and I demand that you affirm that reality. No. He did aspire and that's part of his qualifications. But where did we go to affirm that call? 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1. And we made a judgment call based upon objective truth. We rendered a judgment. Hop down to Matthew seven fifteen. We make judgment calls in ascertaining what is healthy doctrine and what is unorthodox and heretical. Look at Matthew 7, 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. What did Jesus just say? You will make observations, weigh it against objective revelation in the word of God, and you will render a judgment call as to who is a sound teacher of the gospel and who is not. We render judgment on how best to glorify God in this culture. We are called to think on what is true and good and commendable, and we are called to discern what is the will of God in this culture. And we must be able to observe the times and say, render a judgment and be able to say the woke movement with its inherent Marxism is wrong. The insanity of the LGBTQ movement is wrong. The river of blood that flows from Planned Parenthood and the, uh, the culture of death that is ours, we must stand up and say, wrong. But oh, the master is very concerned with how we do that. And let's make it even more personal with one another. This passage has implications for how we treat one another in marriage and in parenting and in our small group when we have to perform soul surgery and say, brother, I love you, but you're wrong. We're going to get to that at the end of the time that we have. Jesus says, don't give dogs and don't give to pigs. These are unclean things. These are not domesticated. I have a Boston Terrier and I love him. He's not really domesticated. <laughs> he's cute, but he's stupid. <laughs> uh, 
It's not that kind of cute domestic animal. These are wild dogs, wild pigs. These are unclean things. And specifically, Jesus is saying there is a time as you go and make disciples, as you go and fulfill the Great Commission, if someone is taking the holy things of God and treating them in a profane way, you must render judgment and decide to stop speaking, log off, and walk away. And that's okay. We love our enemies. Sermon on the Mount has already called us to that, but we love God's honor more. And so, there is a time. In Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is reasoning in the synagogue, and when he found that they were not accepting that Christ was the Messiah, and they were beginning to blaspheme and mock, what does he do? Paul shakes out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads, I'm out. So clearly, again, just hammering this whole idea home, that the cancel culture's use of judge not contextually fails, because in verse 6, our Lord and Master says, my people must be a discerning people. It is one thing to render judgment. It is another thing to be judgmental. We need a lot of grace to exercise this, don't we? Goodness, it is so easy to get self-righteous in this. So that's why I want to start with verse 6. A gospel culture in the church and as the church goes out will be marked by discernment. We must know the times, and we must know the Word of God. And now we're going to go back to verse 1. Number 2, a gospel culture must be marked by humility. Humility. Now go back to Matthew 7, 1. Now that we've made our argument, I've pled my case, Jesus is not talking about being mute when it comes to issues of truth, but now he's going to get to preparing our hearts to speak it. Look at verse 1. Here we are. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The word that Jesus uses here, krino, judge, krino, K-R-I-N-O, it carries with it the idea of continuous, censorious, critical judgment. Does that change it a little bit for you? Judge not. Well, what is, Je what is Jesus saying? Because you just said we've got to make a judgment call. Embedded in the etymology of the word itself is a call to not be censorious and critical and rendering constant judgments. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 1. It's the exact same word used by James in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, when James says this, quote, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So using scripture to interpret scripture, is James saying we just never render judgments, we just let people live how they live? And No, no, no. It's the same word. He says, you're not to be marked by a critical, censorious spirit, a gotcha attitude. It's not a gospel culture. is where you come in walking on eggshells because someone's going to get you. I've been there. It does not commend the gospel. That does not smell like people that love much because they've been forgiven much. It looks like people that maybe have embraced a false form of righteousness 
by way of theology and forgetting the theos of that ology. Jesus is concerned here with our motives more than our methods. He says, judge not, for with the judgment you pronounce, it's exactly what James was saying. What is Jesus saying? He says, when you do that, when you're constantly out to get somebody, you are putting in yourself in the place of God. You are acting as if you are the judge, jury, and executioner of everyone around you. And our Lord knows that is not a burden that we can bear. So it is both a rebuke and a loving correction to say you are not God. You cannot bear that weight. My kingdom people that have been born again and tasted grace and know that their sins are forgiven, they are not to be a constantly critical and censorious people. He says, if you do that, here in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. How do, you, how do you make sense of that? Well, go back to Matthew 6, 14, something that we heard preached a while back, but seems like a long time ago. Matthew 6, 14, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Goodness, what does he mean? It sounds a lot like what he's saying here in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. With the judgment you use, it'll be measured out to you again. I would argue that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 and 7 is if we claim to be kingdom citizens, what are we saying? We say, I, the Sermon on the Mount is for me. Jesus is my king. My heart has been changed. He's forgiven my sins. I know that I am undeserving. I am the wretch of amazing grace that we sing so often but don't think about. I am the one that's undeserving, but King Jesus sought me, saved me, bought me, cleansed me, adopted me. That's where I'm at, by his grace alone. And then to turn around like the unforgiving servant and refuse to forgive, and constantly criticize. Jesus is saying, what does that say about you? That calls your profession of faith into question. With the judgment you use like that, you will be judged yourself. If you refuse to forgive, you won't be forgiven. Beloved, a gospel culture is one in which humility rather than haughtiness permeates our words and our actions. Even as we exercise discernment. This has implications. What, the, what our Lord is calling us to is to exercise discernment, but to be reminded that we are not the judge, jury, and executioner, and that we had a judge. But if Romans 8.1 is true, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's a legal term. There's no judgment for those that are in Christ. Hell is removed. Wrath is abated. Christ satisfied. If that is true, that ought to have massive implications when you sit down to parent that child that has sinned against you. So easy to be hypercritical and censorious with those little heathens. Or with your spouse. You ever have to perform soul surgery when they're in error or in sin? Or with your neighbor that, just a pagan that just can't get it together, can't believe he thinks this and he 
does that and runs his family this way. Jesus calls us to remember that we're not the judge. With the judgment you use, it'll be measured to you again. You're called to be an ambassador for the judge, but you don't carry the gavel. A gospel culture is marked by discernment. A gospel culture is marked by humility. And finally, a gospel culture is marked by intentionality. And intentionality. So now, think about where we've come. Verse 6 settles the issue. Cancel culture doesn't work. It's not a live and let live. It's not a just let bygones be bygones. No, no, no. That we are called to be a discerning. If there's ever a time where we needed discernment, it's now. So please, please be a discerning people. Be a Bible-saturated, critical-thinking people. But don't be a critical-spirited so verses six, verse six tells us we are to render judgments. Verses one and two say, but remember who's the real judge. And now in verse three, four, and five is the application of it. Look at verse three. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see that word then? There's a, there's a chronological order here. There's, a, there's an order of reason here. He says, get this first, and then you can do the action. So the end of Matthew 7, 1 through 6 is removing the speck from the eye. That takes intentionality, but it's how we do it. You know, when I, when I was freshman in college, my mom had me tear apart an old deck that was dry rotted. And after a couple of days went by, my eye was watering. And my mom's actually here this morning. You remember this? When you forced me to do that for free in the summer? Yeah, I'll talk to you later. I'm praying for you. <laughs> so I was ripping apart this deck and my eye was just watering and you know, and so mom, in her wisdom, is like, I think you got something stuck in there, but it's too small for me to see. So she took me into the ER. <laughs> this is what they did. They, they laid me on my back, and they put a solution in my eye that supposedly numbed my eyeball. I think it was my left eye. And they said, okay, here's this. It numbs your eye, but it also reacts to a black light. So we're going to turn the lights down, turn on a black light, and it, it'll make it glow, and we'll see where the little shard of metal is, because you got a little shard of metal on your eye. Um, and then, and here's why I laugh, they're like, don't blink, but we're going to use a needle to scrape it off your eye. <laughs> like, okay, um, I'll do my best. And they did exactly that. They numbed it, and then the, the and you're seeing this needle come down toward your eye. Whew. They got, it was a little tiny piece of metal. But anyway, I couldn't help but think of that as I'm reading this text. So I'm thinking, the last thing I would have wanted was for the doctor to come in, slam down his file, say, okay, I've only got a few minutes. Just, just get on with this, okay? Keep your eye open. And he comes in, grabs my head. I mean, he's helping me, but that, that's not what I want. I'm very thankful the doctor that day was gentle and kind. I needed them to invade. I did, I, my truth at that point, if I said, I believe my truth is that I'm fine, they would say, well, your truth is not true because you have a piece of metal stuck in your eye and you're going to go blind. I'm trying to help you. But I'm imminently thankful 
that they did it with gentility, with discernment. They got the speck out of my eye. They didn't, they didn't try to take off any moles and fix anything else. I just, I was there for one reason. And they did it with a steady hand and a kind heart. It's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. Once we realize that judgment calls should be made in the name of love, and we humble ourselves by remembering who the judge really is, and it's not us, then we are ready to speak the truth in love. When Jesus here in verses 3, 4, and 5, and he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? In modern parlance, it could literally be rendered sawdust. Eedy beedy. Have you ever got sawdust in your eye? It hurts. I mean, I know it's man glitter, but it still hurts. So, but he's talking about something very small, but it shouldn't be there. It's going to cause problems, but he says, but you have a log in yours, and that literally means like a floor joist. Remember in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David. David has effectively committed murder and adultery. And then the prophet Nathan, on God's impetus, by the way, which is grace, sent Nathan to him. And he says, let me tell you a story about a rich man who he could afford all these lambs, you know, but he took this poor man's lamb and he killed it and served it to his guests. And then in an act of sheer insanity and hypocrisy, what does King David do? What's his name? I'll kill him. And then those immortal words come from Nathan. He says, thou art the man. That is exactly what Jesus would have us avoid. And he says, beloved, yes, there are many specks that need to be removed. You are to be surgeons of souls for one another, for your neighbor that's going to hell and doesn't know me. But make sure that you're scrubbed in for the operation. And you don't roll in with a bad attitude and dirty hands. Remember who the judge is before you start performing soul surgery. So how do we do this? How do we do this? How can the church cultivate the right tools with which to become surgeons of souls? How do I take Matthew 7, 1 through 6, not just 1 through 5, but 1 through 6, I've got to make judgment calls in the church, out of the church, in my parenting, in my marriage. I've got to help others fight for joy in Christ. A man cannot see his own face. I need to help get the speck out so that they can thrive. How do I do it like that? Richard Baxter, the old Puritan, in his work, The Quietness and Meekness of Soul, said this. This, this, this is not mine. This is Puritan literature, so you know it's going to be golden. It's just really good. So let me say this. Richard Baxter says, quote, The three qualifications of a good surgeon are the same that are required in a reprover, meaning a speck puller. He should have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, and a lady's hand. Meaning, he should be endued with wisdom, courage, and meekness. So what does that look like in a gospel culture? Not a cancel culture. We're not silent. Truth is truth. Amen? How do we do it? Well, let's take our cues from Richard Baxter. I'll just take a couple of minutes and we'll close here with this portion. An eagle's eye. Ask yourself, am I seeing the issue clearly? Am I thinking about it biblically? Am I making a rash judgment 
Or is it a pattern of sin that will eventually harm this person's joy in Christ? Is it rank heresy or is it just immaturity? Is it God's law that I'm enforcing or is it my law that I'm enforcing? We have to stop and ask some questions so that we see clearly and have an eagle's eye. And once we do that, we must pray for a lion's heart. You can see a lot of problems in the culture, but to take up your cross and follow Jesus and say, I don't think that's right. You need courage, my friend. To go to your brother in your small group that you care for and love, but you know that he's in sin, he's not seeing it, it is going to atrophy his walk with Christ, and it's killing me to watch, but I know I'm risking going in and meddling in his life. God, give me courage. Help me see it clearly. Help me see it clearly. And give me courage to step up, because it's a lot easier and unloving to remain silent But Hebrews 3 says what? Brothers, take care that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sins, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is today. That's a means of grace unto perseverance. God, give me courage to be a means of grace to them. We need an eagle's eye. We need a lion's heart. And finally, we need a lady's hand. Unlike modern cancel culture that places the blame For someone's problems on external causes, we need to remember that our biggest problem is in the mirror. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, for out of the heart of man come these things. So there ought to be a heavy caution as we're scrubbing in for soul surgery to get the log out of our eye, to know that even if they're in sin and it's clear to everyone, I know intuitively that I am not without fault. God, help me, humble me, help me see myself in the light of your law so that when I go in to perform soul surgery, I'm not cantankerous and censorious and judgmental and rough, but I go in with a gentle hand and a sharp eye and the heart of a lion. I would wager that a soft heart makes for a gentle hand. A soft heart makes for a gentle hand. So to my non-Christian friends that are here online, it behooves me to preach a text about judgment to not remind you. And again, I'm making a judgment call, aren't I? And I hope you know I'm doing this in love. I've had to preach this to myself all week. (laughs) But I want to remind you that There is a judge, and he sees all, and he knows all. And that gnawing of your conscience will stand to condemn you on the day of judgment. You cannot escape his eye, and hear me, you cannot cancel him. You can raise your fists to the heavens, you can suppress the truth, you can numb yourself with sex, alcohol, and drugs, but you cannot cancel the voice of your creator. And he has made a way that when he does render a judgment against you with all of your shortcomings and all of your failures and all of your sin, he has made a way so that miracle of miracles, you hear him say, not guilty. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ alone, when you repent of your sin 
and you turn to him in faith and you come to him with empty hands and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. The verdict that is rendered against you because of Christ is not guilty, justified, saved, 100%. To my Christian friends, don't forget, as you go into your small groups and as you live life in community together, as you pray for your neighbors and your coworkers and your distant family and you want them to come to Christ and you know that judgment calls are going to have to be made, battle lines are going to have to be drawn, don't forget and preach to your own heart, I stood condemned. I stood vile before the Holy One of Israel, just like Joshua did in Zechariah 3. But by the grace of God, my record has been cleared. I wear the righteousness of Christ, and I'm not under judgment anymore, and I didn't earn it. So God, soften this heart so that these hands are gentle when I go to perform that soul surgery that you've called me to perform. Judge not, lest ye be judged, is not a call to effectively being mute. It is a call to develop a gospel culture, one in which we have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, and a lady's hand. Let's pray.